Today we read from Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Good morning. Well, we uh, begin our series in 2 Corinthians next week. But before we begin that series, working through the book of 2 Corinthians, we are doing something unusual today. We are doing a topical message on gay marriage. The elders, we all felt like this was important because our culture today has changed, and it's changing very rapidly. It's hard to believe that just 17 years ago, in 1996, our Congress voted for the DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, overwhelmingly supporting it, and President Bill Clinton signed it into law. The Defense of Marriage Act said that the federal government cannot recognize any kind of marriage other than that between a man and a woman. Fast forward up to 2013, this year things have changed, part of DOMA has been struck down in the courts. Thirteen states have adopted same-sex marriage as of August. And the fact is, folks, our children and grandchildren will grow up in a world in which gay marriage will be considered normal. That's just the way we're headed. And most of us in this room, I'm sure, have either friends or family who have declared themselves to be gay. I've had best friends, relatives, a number of acquaintances who have declared themselves to be gay. Some have gotten married. And so, like it or not, this is taking over society. So we as Christians need to be able to think biblically, think Christianly about this issue because we are confronted with it, like it or not. We can't avoid it. So this morning, in this very brief time we have together, I'll be looking at God's view of marriage, briefly, God's view of homosexuality, as we see from the Scriptures, and the proper role of government, 
Then we'll talk together about how we as believers should respond to this issue. So it's an ambitious uh, agenda we have this morning, but let's turn to the Lord as we prepare for this. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, as we talk together in this difficult subject that we are all facing in our culture, I pray that there might be, by your Spirit, a spirit of truth and grace, a spirit of love, and that you might speak to each of our hearts right where we are. Help us be open to hear from you. May you accomplish your will through what we look at today in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin with a biblical perspective of marriage. David just read a wonderful passage in chapter 2 of Genesis. I want to step back just a bit to Genesis chapter 1. So if you want to turn with me there, you can join me at chapter 1, verse 26 of the book of Genesis. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God says, Let us, make man in our image the triune God Father, Son and Holy Spirit said I want to make man in our image and so he said he made them male and female in the image of God God created marriage at that point see marriage is God's idea he created it and notice the tasks he gave to this image of God, union, male and female together. He said, fill the earth, which obviously takes a male and a female to accomplish without some kind of scientific engineering. And he said, fill the earth and rule over it. There's something unique, he's saying, about the image of God in Two different genders coming together. One male, one female coming together, which fulfills the very purposes of God, reflects the image of God to a world that needs to understand who God is. And that can fill the earth and then rule together over creation. Now, if you're a single person, clearly you are made in the image of God. But... He is saying there's something unique about this marital union, this oneness that God's designed. Marriage provides a place for children to have role models of both genders. There's a wholeness. There's a beauty, a community that's established through a male and female coming together to create a union. I want to jump into the New Testament because some say, well, Jesus looks at it differently. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to read Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees about divorce. We are not going to address that part of it today. But in verse 4, it says, Jesus answered them and said, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus confirms the Old Testament teaching clearly. The marriage is a man and a woman coming together to create something new, uh, something that's one, he says, one flesh, a oneness, a beauty about that that is God's design for all the world to see God's image in this marital union. There's much more we could look at, but let me just say this, that just from these passages we see that marriage is God's creation. It's not government's creation. It's not a societal creation. Only God, because He designed it, He created us for it, can determine the true parameters of marriage. And He has. It's one woman and one man united through a covenant before God. This is God's design. So, clearly a same-sex marriage is outside of God's plan. Only a male and female together learning to become one reflects God's image to the world. Let me, let me say that a gay marriage can express love. And there may be great love in a gay marriage. But they're missing out because they cannot reflect or fulfill God's ultimate design for marriage. So that's a quick overview of a biblical perspective of marriage and how this fits into that this whole idea of gay marriage. Now I want to look at a biblical perspective of homosexuality very quickly. What does God's Word say? I'm turning to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. We could look at several verses, but Leviticus 18, verse 22, part of the Old Testament law, says this, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. In Leviticus 20, it says, you shall not do this or you shall be executed if you're caught expressing this. You see, lying with someone of the same sex is clearly not God's will, whether it's a committed relationship or not. It it just says if you do this act, if you commit this act, it's an abomination to God. That's Old Testament. Turn with me now. I want to spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for a New Testament perspective of a biblical view of homosexuality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, those who commit premarital sex, or sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, those who put something in their heart above God, they worship something other than God, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, it's my translation, that word refers specifically to the passive partner in a homosexual relationship, nor homosexuals, that is the more active partner, nor thieves, 
nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's very clear that both the effeminate partner or the more active partner are, along with other sins, declared to be grounds for being left out of the kingdom of God. But I want you to highlight something. Notice the other sins that are listed there. Anybody here ever coveted? (laughs) Anybody here ever been an idolater, put something else in your heart above God? Another person, money, things, etc. Your own success. Anybody here ever stolen something? Or been addicted to something? Or been angry at someone else and reviled them, said harsh things to them? See, I think when you look at this, you need to have clear in your mind that we're all broken. That none of us, by our actions, deserve the kingdom of God. We are all in this category. So there's no way we can make a distinction and say, well, I'm not like them. (laughs) We may struggle with different sins than them, but... We are the same. We're all broken and we all need God's grace. And the result of living contrary to God's grace, whether it's a homosexual lifestyle or a coveting lifestyle or violating or whatever it is, is death, destruction, frustration, brokenness in our lives. And we've all experienced that to some degree. We cannot make a distinction. We all are broken. I love the way Billy Graham put it as he was on Larry King Live one time and Larry King was trying to catch him and he said, so is homosexuality a sin? Billy Graham didn't bat an eye. He immediately said, yes, it's right up there with gossip. And we need to realize in God's sight, it is. In God's sight, there is no distinction. We all need his grace and forgiveness. But notice the next verse. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but... You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. It's clear that some of the Corinthians were struggling with all different aspects of these, including homosexuality. But he clearly says here, you were, but, but, but. God has intervened in your lives, O Corinthians, and God has transformed you. God has changed you. Then at the end of the chapter, it says this, verse 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So he says, look, God's transformed you, so you do not have to live by those other ungodly desires. You see, we all experience ungodly desires of some kind or another that make us want to go in a direction contrary to God. 
including the things we've seen listed, anger, covetousness, idolatry, etc., etc. We all have ungodly desires and we all need God's grace. But what he says here is, look, God begins to transform you and therefore no longer live by your own selfish desires, whatever they are. But instead, learn that your temple, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and learn to submit to God. Learn to see you've been bought with a price. Learn to walk with Him. Life is not about pleasuring yourself. It's about pleasing God. Thus, and we need to keep this very clear in our minds as Christians, change is always possible. It may just be a change in behavior. God does not guarantee He will take away same-sex attraction. But He does promise that we, when we submit to Him, will not have to act on those ungodly desires, whatever they are. I want to look at one more passage, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, says, Because man has turned away from God, worshipped things other than God, we've said, God, I will not worship you. I will worship your creation. I will worship other people. I will worship something other than you. Idolatry, essentially then the result is God's wrath is poured out. We, we are given over to our desires. And in verse 26, it says this of chapter 1 of Romans. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. We don't have time to exegete this whole passage, but I think it's pretty clear here that from Paul's perspective, homosexuality is seen as a result of man's refusing to worship God. So because man exchanges worship of God for something else, God gives us over to all kinds of ungodly desires. He goes on to list a whole lot of other things. But homosexuality in particular is a sign of a culture that is moving further and further from authentic worship of God. It's a sign of a morally corrupt, godless society. Now let me say something about the gay narrative. In other words, the gay propaganda, the gay story, the gay description that has permeated our culture of the LGBT coalition, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Here's what we have had drilled into our minds in our culture over and over again. If you have same-sex attraction, you find yourself early in life, late in life, or whenever in life, attracted to the same sex then here's the message. Oh, well, that's your orientation. That's your preference. That's your sexual preference. You are oriented that way. And then step three, therefore, that is your identity. You are a homosexual. You are gay. That is your identity. That is foundationally who you are as a person. 
like being black or Asian or whatever. So this is what we have drilled into us in our culture. And, and, and so the gay culture, the gay coalition, follows songs like Macklemore wrote a song called Same Love. He's a rapper. And these are some of the words. It's kind of become the anthem of the LGBT coalition. The right-wing conservatives think it's a decision and you can be cured with some treatment and religion. Man-made rewiring of a predisposition. Playing God, ah, nah, here we go. And I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to, and I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to. Later in the song, love is patient, love is kind. Love is patient, love is kind. Not crying on Sundays. Love is patient, not crying on Sundays. Love is kind. I'm not crying on Sundays. It's the cry of a heart that says, People don't understand me. If they only understood that I can't change, maybe they would accept me and affirm me. And that's the message that's being sent. But let me just say that there is a different narrative, a different explanation that I think we as Christians have not been very good about giving our world, our culture, and our young people especially, a different understanding of same-sex attraction. Although more and more writings are out there describing that they don't agree with the idea that you're just born that way, that this is the way it is, this is the narrative, you don't have a choice, etc. Professor David Greenberg, for example, of New York University, this is a description of a 635-page book, The Construction of Homosexuality, where he, he looked at the history of homosexuality and he found that Throughout history, it's always been seen as just a behavior that people can choose for a while. But it doesn't describe your basic identity. And this is a description of his book. Greenberg suggests that the idea of a stable, lifelong homosexual identity is an invention of modern Western societies. Homosexuality is not an essence or condition that some people have and others do not. It is not a minority orientation that perhaps 10% of the population have, and when they discover their condition, become liberated to conform to their true natures. Greenberg argues that homosexual identity is a social label. Our culture has created this social label, never before seen in history, to try to describe homosexuality and same-sex attraction. Well, what's another way of describing it then? What's a more biblical way of describing it? I think a biblical perspective is this. Same-sex attraction is an ungodly desire just like other ungodly desires to gossip, to be envious, anger, covetousness, etc., etc. I think biblically it's just another ungodly desire. You may struggle with a different one. Some struggle with same-sex attraction. Each of us is plagued with ungodly desires while on earth. That's part of our fallenness in this world. They come out of our fallen nature, but we have a choice to submit that to God. 
if we pray and say, Lord, take away this ungodly desire, this lust for other women besides my wife, this covetousness, etc., God may or may not take that away. But we are still called as Christians to submit to God and not act on that ungodly desire. You follow me? It's the same with homosexuality. And so our belie- a believer's identity is in Christ, not in our gender, as the world is telling us today. Our identity is in Christ, in what He has done for me, not in what the world tells us. You see, the great danger of the gay agenda that's telling us, well, this is your identity, is we have young people, and I know several Christian young people who have struggled with same-sex attraction. They find themselves drawn to the same sex, and the world is telling them, oh, well, that must be your orientation, and now it is your identity. And so they've struggled with this, and they've prayed to God, God, take this away. I don't want this. It doesn't seem right to me. And God hasn't, for whatever reason, chosen to take it away. And so they think, well... God must want me this way. I must have been born this way, therefore, I guess I'm gay. Well, see, a proper view would be to say, wow, I struggle with the same-sex attraction. Whether God takes it away or not, I don't have to give in to that. God may call me to celibacy for the rest of my life, or he may take away those desires and give me desires for the opposite sex, but either way, I can submit to God and follow him and walk with him because my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and I will trust and follow Him. You see, that's the kind of message we need to send to our young people because they're not getting it from our culture. Let me just draw another analogy here. It would be foolish to say, well, you know what, I'm attracted to other men's wives. And I guess that's my orientation. So you know what? If I'm going to be a whole person, I need to act on that. I guess I was born this way. I prayed for God to take it away, so I guess I'm just an adulterer. Now we laugh at that, but that is exactly what people are thinking with regard to homosexuality. And they, I just want to say we don't have to think that way. I, I could give you many examples of people I know whom God has changed, either taken away the desires or not. Let me just read one example from Pastor Sean Harrison from 611 Ministries who has struggled all his life as a pastor even with same-sex attraction. He said, I knew having gay feelings was wrong, but I also knew that I could not help having them. I prayed to be straight. I prayed that these wrong feelings would pass away. I even tried looking at straight porn to fix myself, but nothing I tried seemed to work. I was in counseling and had a great support of friends. But even all of these things still didn't help me overcome my struggles of sexual identity. I had foolishly hoped my temptations would disappear, but they didn't. I learned through mistakes and triumphs that it is a daily process to not give in to what your body longs for at times. I had to refocus my desires and renew my mind. It has not been an easy journey, but it's been worth every step. 
Do I still struggle? Yes. Do my struggles get easier over time? Yes. However, just as I do not allow my past to define me, I also do not allow my struggles to define me. I see myself as God's child, and I'm seeking his identity, not my own. Sean has a beautiful family now, several children. As he says, does he still struggle? Yes. But he's learned to submit those to God. Just an example of what God can do. And let me say this. Obviously, church this big, this many people gathered together, there are some here who struggle with same-sex attraction. It's part of our fallenness. And if that's the case, I, I just want to say, I long for us as a church body to be a place where you can come and say, yeah, I struggle. I want to be a godly person, but, but I struggle with this. And that we can share our struggles with whatever ungodly desires we struggle with and that we might support each other. And this could be a place where you could come and find support and love and care to help you on your journey towards wholeness. We're all broken. And we need to be a place where we can support each other in our brokenness. I want to say just a word about the government's proper role. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. I'll keep this part very brief, but I think it's worth saying. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 says this, Submit yourselves to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king, to the one in authority, or to governors to be sent as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Peter states the proper role of government is twofold. Number one, to punish evildoers, as it says. Thus, the government's call, its role, is to restrict evil or harmful behavior. Therefore, we have laws against murder, against stealing, etc., etc., and we punish people. We put them in jail if they break the law. That's a proper role of government. Then it says it's for the praise of those who do right. The second purpose of government, major purpose of government, is to promote good and helpful behavior. Therefore, our government does that in a number of ways. It promotes generosity by a favorable tax structure. If you give a charitable gift, you get a tax deduction. The government promotes marriage by favorable tax structure towards married people. Our government promotes nonprofits and churches, others that do good in society, that care for others, that bless other people in culture because the government sees that's an important thing. So we get tax breaks for those things. But legalizing same-sex marriage is a big step away from the proper role of government because it's promoting something that largely throughout history and in the scriptures is seen as wrong. So it's a step outside of the proper role of government. It's a perversion of God's design for proper governments. But we need to understand, folks, that our United States government is not godly. 
There's a number of things it promotes. Even though it does much good, it increasingly is doing things to promote evil, whether it's legalizing abortion, unjust and ungodly economic laws, using torture against international law, drone killings, etc., etc. We could go on ways in which the government has stepped outside its proper God-given bounds. So given that, given what the scriptures say about all these things, what is our proper response as believers to a world in which gay marriage is becoming more and more acceptable in culture? I want to give you four responses that I think we are called to as believers. Number one, and perhaps most important, we are called to repentance. Repentance. We've done a lot, and I say we, I'm talking about the Christian world, the Christian community, we've done a lot of finger pointing. It's easy for us because we don't understand the homosexual drive for same-sex attraction to point fingers and say they, they, they. We need to repent of that and realize we are as broken as they are and we need God's grace just as much as they do and they desperately need God's grace. Secondly, we need to repent of the way we've handled marriage. Isn't it interesting that we as the church have such a high divorce rate? People say, Christians say, yeah, marriage is tough, so I'm going to divorce this person, I'm going to move on, and we have not valued marriage. And here is a group of people the gay culture that says, we value marriage. We want it. And yet we have treated it lightly. And I think we need to repent as believers. We need to value marriage. It's hypocritical to condemn gay marriage and yet allow divorce and selfishness to flourish in the church. Our sin is as great as those seeking to live in gay marriages. So number one, we need to repent. Number two, we need to be an example to the world. We need to be a culture in which we live out examples of covenant relationships. What, what, what we're seeing in the gay community is people are saying, I struggle with this area. I struggle with same-sex attraction and If I look at the church, I feel rejected. There's no community there for me. And the only place I can go to find real community and affirmation is the gay culture. And folks, I long for the church and community church in particular to be a place where people who are struggling with same-sex attraction can come and say, this is my community. This is where I get affirmed. This is where I find acceptance yes we hold on to truth but we hold on to love as well and we need to be better examples of living out covenant relationships in our marriages with God with our church family in our jobs The gay community is longing for a place where there's real community 
We should be that place. We need to be an example to the world. Third, we need to have a prophetic voice. We do need to speak truth to a culture that's moving further and further away from God. And that means that we stand against culture and we speak forth and say, no, this is true marriage. This is true love. This is what God calls us to. I think to have a prophetic voice, it begins by getting informed. At the bottom of your notes page in your bulletin, I make a couple of suggestions just to get you started. One is this book, Homosexuality and the Christian by Mark Yarhouse, a guide for parents, pastors, and friends. It's just a beginning point for you. Also, there's a website listed there, 611 Ministries. I read the testimony of Sean Harrison, who began that ministry. Those are just beginning points. You'll find other links. You'll find places to go to get more informed of a Christian view of gay marriage. But we need to tell the truth. We need to speak forth it to our culture about God's design for marriage. We need to speak out about the brokenness of those living in any way contrary to God's design. What, what I've discovered in my contacts with people who are gay is that there is an incredible amount of shame. Deep down, they, they sense that this is not right. I know it's not right. It doesn't fit. And yet, that's why we see so much militancy, I think, and so much pushing back and, and wanting to be affirmed and accepted in culture and wanting gay marriage and all is because they're trying to find some place of affirmation of their sinfulness. But we as Christians need to say, no, there's a better answer. Not affirmation of an ungodly lifestyle, but freedom and forgiveness and life in Christ. We are all broken. But I found a place where there's forgiveness and healing. But we need to have a prophetic voice to tell people about that. Yes, should we vote against the establishment of gay marriage? Sure, but we need to go way beyond that. We need to speak out about the government's wrong policies and declare everyone's need for reconciliation with God. And then number four, I think we as believers are called to love homosexuals. What I mean is we need to know that there cannot be true fulfillment apart from God, and so we need to actually get to know those in our families, those our neighbors, those in our community who are struggling with this issue or maybe aren't struggling but just declare themselves to be gay. But deep down, we need to remember that there are broken people like we all are and that they need Christ. I was struck as I went to... National AIDS Day here in Boise went to a support group down at the park. We were meeting together and I got to chat with a number of men struggling with AIDS. One that was on 45 different medications to deal with it. One was on 23 and these were men that were just struggling. We chatted for quite a while and when they finally found out I was a pastor, they were dumbfounded that I was there. What do you what are you doing here? What church do you belong to? What, why are you here? I got kicked out of my church, one of them told me. And their view of Christians is, well, they're just pointing fingers at us and hating us. We need 
to move into their lives, make a friend of a gay person and help them know that, yeah, we don't agree with their lifestyle, but we long for them to know the love of Christ and we love them as a person. You see, we're to bring to our culture the love of Christ to help them realize that we're just like them. (laughs) They're just like us. Broken by sin. And in need of being washed, of being sanctified, of being justified by the blood of Christ. There's no finger pointing. There's just an offer. (laughs) An offer of life. Let's pray. Lord, as we have talked this through this morning. I know there's some that are struggling, hurting, who need to know your grace and your love in this. Help us, Lord, to be people who reflect your heart for the gay community, who don't let go of truth and yet express the love that you have for them. Help us be Jesus to them. I have to believe that Jesus would be hanging around with a lot of gay people if he were walking the earth today. May we be Jesus to them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.